0: Good morning and welcome to our morning worship service at West Houston Bible Church. We have a couple of announcements. First of all, uh, as most of you know, Curtis Carnegie, uh, the husband of Thelma Carnegie, is face to face with the Lord. Our condolences to Thelma, their three sons, Terry Amex, Keith Amix, and Guy Carnegie. Services are still pending, final arrangements, but they're tentatively scheduled for Wednesday afternoon at the uh, Veterans Memorial uh, Chapel, or if not there, then here at West Houston Bible Church. Viewing will be Tuesday evening, November 21st, from 6 to 8 p.m. at Clare Brothers, which is located at Hillcroft and Bissonette. At the present time, Thelma is very, very ill. She has strep throat and a kidney infection, and she's really down for the count right now. So please keep her in your prayers and the family. Also mark your calendars for the first Sunday, I mean first Saturday in December. That Saturday December the 2nd, that evening we're going to have a family night. It will be our Christmas tree trimming party and so that'll be a great time to uh, bring the kids and the grandkids and neighborhood kids and older kids and anybody who enjoys Christmas. All right, before we begin this morning, we need to direct our attention to the Lord who has provided everything for us and for whom we gather on Sunday morning to uh, praise His name and to learn His Word. So let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we're indeed grateful that we can come together, that we can worship You in song and in the study of Your Word this morning. Father, we thank You that You have provided so much for us, and especially our salvation, that You sent Your Son to die on the cross for us, and that by faith alone, in Christ alone, we have eternal salvation. Now Father, may all that we say and do this morning honor and glorify You. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the 89th Psalm. The 89th Psalm was written as a meditation on the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant lies at the background of the passage that we're studying this morning in the morning message. The Davidic Covenant is given in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it is the promise of God to David that he would have a descendant that would sit on an eternal throne. And we will study that briefly this morning. But verses 11 through 29 of Psalm 89 will be our reading this morning. This is the focal point of the psalm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world in all its fullness, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, rejoice in your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand and high is your Right hand, righteousness, and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor. Our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established. Also my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my father my God and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. Scripture teaches that it's the privilege and responsibility of every believer priest to support the local church as well as missions. Giving is not something that we do in order to curry favor with God, but is a response to His grace in our own lives. Grace is to be motivated by our understanding of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross and what the Lord has provided for us in our ongoing Christian life. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for all that you have provided for us, for the lives that we have, the friends that we have, the families we have. We're indeed thankful for the, above all things, for the salvation that you have given us in the new life that we have in Jesus Christ and all the magnificent blessings and assets that you have given us and for Your Word which reveals to us how all things are. Now, Father, as we give these gifts in response to Your grace, may they be given in the manner of generosity and graciousness in response to all that You have done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Scripture says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Whenever we sin as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't threaten our salvation, but it does breach our fellowship with the Lord. But we have a grace basis for spiritual recovery. First John 1.9 says that if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins in privacy to God the Father, if we admit our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At the instant that we admit our sins to Him, we are instantly forgiven. The sanctifying ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, which is referred to in the Bible under such terms as the filling of the Spirit or walking by the Spirit, is immediately restored and we recover our forward momentum in the spiritual life. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer and then I open in prayer. So let's bow our heads together and I will open in prayer in just a minute. Let's pray. Father, You are the Creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. You laid out a course for human history from eternity past, and You are moving the human race down that path toward its ultimate conclusion. A vital part of that has to do with what You are doing with the church, with those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ during this dispensation from the time of the crucifixion up to the rapture of the church. As you prepare us, a specific group or body of believers for a future destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in his future kingdom. Now, Father, as we study these things this morning, may we be able to understand them. May you uh, clarify for us aspects of the gospel that we need to understand. And may we clearly understand our destiny as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Steven Weinberg is a professor of physics at Harvard University, and he's a Nobel laureate. In his discussion of the nature of the universe and his promotion of Darwinian evolution, he examines a question of ultimate significance. But his belief in the theory of evolution has led him to the depressing conclusion that the universe is without purpose or design or just a cosmic accident. We are, he concludes, merely specks in an overwhelmingly hostile universe. He states, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. So what solace does he offer in light of this? What is the significance of man according to Weinberg and others in our secular culture who hold to a system of origins based on evolution? What are we to make of this pointless situation in a hostile cosmos? Well, he only has one answer. The effort to understand the universe is one of the very few things that lifts human life a little above the level of a farce and gives it some of the grace of tragedy. How sad, that's all there is. In writing about religion, he states, Religion is an insult to human dignity. With or without it, you would have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things. But for good people to do evil things, that takes religion. What a cynical view of life. What a depressing view of life. Of course, people like him just ignore the fact that how many millions were killed in the name of pseudoscience by Joseph Mengele during the Second World War and the Holocaust and numerous other tragic things that have occurred in the name of science. We always seem to want to blame religion. But he expresses in this quote, the despair, the emptiness, the anger of modern man toward God. Modern man who is without truth and without hope and without Christ has nothing to truly live for other than the pleasure of the stimulation of the moment, or whatever he finds some little meaning in in what he studies. For the Christian, though, we have purpose. We have meaning. We have a clear destiny as explained in the Scripture. For Scripture teaches that not only do we have a purpose and destiny, but that that destiny is to rule and reign with Jesus Christ and that today's life is functions within the framework of, tra- of a training ground for that future destiny. As we orient our thinking to that future destiny, it gives meaning and purpose and value to even the most minute things that happen in our life. The things that seem to be pure coincidence suddenly take on uh, a new meaning and new uh, emphasis. We see this in such passages as the one we're studying today in Revelation three, twenty-one. Now, this is the last verse, the last or next to last verse. 321 and 322, in our study of the seven letters to the seven churches at the opening of Revelation. These are, as I've pointed out, ecclesiastical evaluation reports. And in these seven letters, we see the trends of the church age. The church age began on the day of Pentecost, some 50 days after our Lord was crucified on the cross. It ends with the rapture of the church, and during this age... There are seven different churches that are identified and represented, and their various strengths and weaknesses exemplify the strengths and weaknesses of the church throughout the church age. These are trends in the church age. We can't distinguish uh, on the basis of these churches where we are or where we're going to be, but we know that on the basis of other things, we must be near the end of the church age, and our Lord Jesus Christ coming back in the clouds to take the church to be with him in the event known as the rapture of the church. These letters are designed to challenge every believer with the reality that Jesus Christ can come back today. He could come back tonight. He can come back tomorrow. And the question is, are you ready? Not are you ready simply in a soteriological sense, in the sense of salvation. Have you prepared yourself in terms of your faith in Jesus Christ as to whether or not your destiny is heaven. That is important. That is the most important decision you will ever make in this life because Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person, no one's any better than anyone else in the sight of God. God loved us so much that He sent His Son to die on the cross for us that by simply trusting in Him, we have eternal life. And at the instant that someone puts their faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant we not only have eternal life, but we are adopted into the royal family of God through a process known as regeneration. We're born again, and we become spiritual infants. And there's a process of growth that takes place after that where we grow to spiritual maturity. But it's not just for the fact of growing to spiritual maturity. It is that we are in training for a future role and responsibility. And this is what we see emphasized in these overcomer passages at the end of each of these short evaluation reports. At the end of each one, there is a promise, an incentive that is given to the believer who is an overcomer that there are special categories of blessings and rewards. And this is what we see in Revelation 3.21. There we read, "To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne." Now I pointed out as we began the study of this verse several weeks ago that there are three key things that have to be understood in this passage, and we spent the vast amount of our time the last three or four weeks focusing on the first two: the identification of the victorious believer, the overcomer. Who is the overcomer and what does he overcome? And in that study we saw that the overcomer is not the person who gets saved, but the overcomer is the saved uh, individual, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who then grows to spiritual maturity, who overcomes the obstacles and the adversities in life through the use of the Word of God. He is primarily said to overcome the world just as Jesus overcame the world before he went to the cross. Jesus' act of overcoming the world sets the pattern, the precedence, the model for how we grow as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, John 16:33. But it is related to a future destiny indicated by the use of this word throne in the passage that if we are overcomers, then we will be granted a special privilege and position to sit with the Lord Jesus Christ on His throne. Even as, and that's the pattern, that's the comparison, is He overcame. And once He overcame, He didn't sit on His throne. Note what the passage says. He sat on the throne of His Father. So as He shares that position with the Father, so we too will share that position with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the focus this morning is to understand the emphasis of this reference to sitting with me on my throne. Revelation 3:21 emphasizes two thrones. The first throne is the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ which as we will see has not yet uh, occurred. The second throne that's mentioned is that of the Father the first person of the Trinity. Now, to understand this, we have to understand the image of the throne and the reference to the throne that's used in Scripture. The image of the throne is used throughout the Scripture to denote authority, power, majesty, and splendor. Biblical references to the throne commonly emphasizes not the physical throne itself, not the chair upon which the the king sits, but to emphasize his authority and power, the the royal authority and power that is inherent to that position. Thus, a reference to the throne is a reference to the power and authority of the one sitting on the throne to rule. So the father sits on the throne because he is the one who has the power and the authority to rule over all creation. He is the sovereign creator of all things. There is nothing in... Heaven or on earth that has not been created by Him and for Him. But the Lord Jesus Christ is destined to sit on His throne. As we will see, that is a distinct throne. It is the Davidic throne as we referenced in our morning reading this morning in Psalm 89. And He does not take His position on that throne until He returns at what is called the Second Coming or the Second Advent. It is at that time that he takes up the reins of power and he has the power and authority given to him by the Father to rule on planet earth. This throne of the Lord Jesus Christ derives from an Old Testament covenant, an Old Testament promise referred to as the Davidic covenant. David was the first great king of Israel. He was not the first king of all of Israel. That was Uh, the first one anointed by God, that is, was Saul. There was a minor figure called Abimelech who the uh, citizens of Shechem uh, tried to make king back in the period of the Judges, but he wasn't anointed by God. Saul was the first one anointed by God, and he was a failure. Actually, I think God was using Saul as a negative to prepare people for the positive. David was the first good king of Israel, the king over uh, all 12 tribes, And God blessed him greatly despite his failures in life, which always reminds us of the magnificence of God's grace. And God gave David a special covenant, a special promise, a special contract, promising David that a descendant from him would sit on an eternal throne governing over the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of God's people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is emphasized in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, and again in verse 16. Verse 12 we read, When your days, God says, speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. That tells us that this king that God is talking about will be true humanity. He will... Be a physical descendant from David. Verse 13. He shall build a house. For my name I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That tells us that an aspect of this king would be eternality. Well, that immediately brings in the aspect of deity. He will come from David and be human, but the only way you can have a king who can establish an eternal throne as if he is from God. And so that is the emphasis there. We see the inference in this passage of both the humanity and the deity of the Messiah who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 16, God says to David, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now the next time that we see this promise developed a little bit in the Old Testament is in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Before we get there, there are four eternal promises of the Davidic Covenant. The promises that we have in the Covenant in 2 Samuel 7 are eternal in nature. They are mediated through Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Hebrew word Mashiach. is where we get our word Messiah. It's translated Christos into uh, the Greek means the same thing the anointed one the appointed one the one God has designated to be the savior of the world and in the davidic covenant there are four promises a promise of an eternal dynasty a promise of an eternal throne promise of an eternal kingdom and promise of an eternal descendant so the foundation for talking about the throne of Jesus Christ is in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 Now we'll go to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, 7 we read, Of the increase of His government, referring to the Messiah, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over His kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So the next development of this that we see is in Isaiah 9-7 that the Messiah will, be, will establish the throne of David and reign over his kingdom. Now this is important because this is the backdrop for Luke one 32. Luke one the uh, angel Gabriel announces to Mary the birth of a son. And the angel says to her, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest, an indication of deity, that he would be called God. The son of the highest would be a designation of his deity. And the Hebrew idiom was such that if you were called the son of something, that's what you were. For example, if you were a fool, you would be called the son of a fool. If you were were royalty, you would be called the son of the king. If you were God, you would be called the Son of God. See, that is, the Son of God emphasizes deity. Son of man emphasizes humanity. Son of the highest indicates that Jesus is God. This is part of the Hebrew Hebrew idiom. If you were a murderer, you would be called the son of a murderer. These examples are found throughout the Old Testament. So he will be great and will be called the Son of the highest. He will be God incarnate. And the Lord God will give him the what? the throne of his father David. So you can't understand the Messianic announcement to Mary unless you understand Second Samuel 7 and Isaiah chapter 9 and all these other Old Testament references. The Lord Jesus Christ was intended to take the throne of his father. He was a direct descendant through Mary of King David. So, the Lord is going to take this throne. He did not take it at his first coming. When he came, he presented the kingdom to Israel, but they rejected it. They rejected him as king and rejected the kingdom that he offered. Remember in those passages that when John the Baptist first came on the scene, his message was repent. His message to the Jews was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's announcing that it is impending, it's here, it's about to be offered and then when jesus came he said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and he was offering it in his person and he sent out his disciples to not to the world at first but just to the gent just to the jewish tribes because he's offering the jewish kingdom and he says their message was to be repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand but they rejected that and in matthew chapter 12 we see the climax of that when the pharisees and the Sadducees accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. And that is when the Lord says that this is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and judgment would come upon them. And that judgment came in AD 70 when they were destroyed by the Roman armies under Titus. So he did not establish his kingdom at that first coming. He offered it, but he did not. Inaugurated, He is not now sitting on a throne other than the Father's throne. And so we come back to Revelation 3.21. Jesus says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Now, what throne is that? Well, in the light of what we've seen in 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 9 and Luke 1, it's the throne of David, that is his throne. he is not now sitting on the throne of David. The throne of David is going to be centered in Jerusalem in the in the uh, kingdom of Israel that will be established in the millennial kingdom. Now, there are numerous references to this to the concept of a throne in the book of Revelation. In fact, there are three thrones mentioned in Revelation, three distinct thrones. First of all, there's the throne of Satan mentioned in Pergamum, which is the center of a false, idolatrous religion in Revelation 2.13. In Revelation 13, verse 2, there's the mention of the throne, the dominion, the power, the kingdom of the Antichrist, which is given to him by Satan, referred to as the dragon. This is mentioned again in Revelation 16, verse 10. Then there is the throne of God, the almighty this is the throne mentioned of the father in revelation 321 it's expanded in revelation chapter 4 verses 2 through 10 mentions the throne repeatedly and it is always the father's throne because the lamb is not even present at first in revelation chapter 4 revelation chapter 4 verse 10 the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne. Revelation 5.13 we read, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See the distinction in personality? There's one who sits on the throne... And then there's the Lamb. The Lamb, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb is a specific and special title of the Lord Jesus Christ used throughout the book of Revelation. It has its origin in the typology of the Passover and the sacrifices in the Old Testament, specifically the Passover, for Paul refers to Jesus Christ as our Passover. At the Passover, the original Passover was the was related to the tenth plague in Egypt. When the Jews were in Egypt and they were enslaved in Egypt and God was putting the pressure on Pharaoh to release them and you had ten successively devastating plagues, each one turning the fire up a little more and each time Pharaoh became more and more resistant to what God was doing. And so finally, he sends the, God sends the angel of death who will take the life of the firstborn in every household throughout Egypt. And the Jews were told that if you want to be saved from this judgment, there is one and only one way to be delivered. And that is to take a lamb, a lamb that's examined for three days, a lamb that was without spot or blemish, a lamb that was to picture the future person of the Lord Jesus Christ and they would take that lamb and they would sacrifice that lamb and they would spread his blood upon the doorposts of the house and when the angel of death passed over and saw that blood on the door those in the house were covered by the blood and thus the angel of death passed over and there was no death it is a perfect picture of our salvation. Because we are all under the condemnation of death just as the firstborn in Egypt was. And it is only through the application of the death of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's only through the application of His death to our lives that eternal condemnation will be taken from us and that death penalty will be uh, passed over and we will have eternal life. So the Lamb is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's distinct from the Father. And throughout Revelation, we will see that His throne is distinct from the Father's throne. Revelation 6.16, we read, And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne, that's one personage, and from the wrath of the Lamb, a second personage. So obviously we have to distinguish between these two personages and these two thrones. Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 11 verse 15 and verse 17 all distinguish again the personage who's sitting on the throne and the lamb. Verse 9 reads after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one can number of all nations of all nations tribes Peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Notice a distinction. And before the Lamb. Where's the Lamb? The Lamb is seated still at the right hand of the Father. He is sharing the Father's throne, according to Revelation 3.21. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb notice that distinction now one reason I'm, I'm emphasizing this for you is one of the great uh debate points related to dispensationalism today is there are many who claim that jesus is now on the throne of david and that we are in some form of the kingdom And my response to that is that i must be in a millennial ghetto because it certainly doesn't seem to me like the lions are lying down with the lambs or that a, I certainly don't want to go go out to West Texas and put my hand down in a rattlesnake den. But this is what happens when you get away from a literal interpretation of Scripture. Revelation 7.11 concludes, All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God. So the term God, Theos, refers to the Father in the book of Revelation. He is the one sitting on the throne, and He is still attended to by the lamb who is sharing his throne now all of this is important for understanding the entire concept of our inheritance and rewards for that's what these overcomer passages are talking about they're emphasizing the fact that there's an incentive out there for believers when we trust jesus christ as our savior you enter into a permanent contract with god for your salvation You can't do anything to lose it. You can't do anything to destroy it. You have salvation forever and ever. It's called the doctrine of eternal security. Once saved, always saved. Your salvation doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on your will. It doesn't depend on anything you do. It depends on the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin that you and I will ever commit. There's not a single sin that you can commit tomorrow that wasn't in the mind of God in eternity past and wasn't imputed and placed on Jesus Christ while he was on the cross. So sin is no longer the issue. Once you trust in Christ as your Savior, you have eternal life. But see, the question that comes up for a lot of people is, golly, if I'm, if I'm saved, then why should I be moral? Why should I be spiritual? Why can't I just go live my life any way I want to because I can't lose my salvation. This was a problem in the Reformation because in the Roman Catholic Church, the way they got around it was they said, well, you don't really know that you're saved until you die because you have to have the right kind of works. You have to get enough brownie points. Uh, in by participating in the sacraments and you never really know for sure if you're saved until you die and even then you may not be sure and if you don't have quite enough brownie points to get to heaven well you go to a holding place called purgatory and then you know if enough people get baptized for you or pay indulgences or whatever then you might finally get sprung from purgatory and actually make it into heaven but you don't really know. So Uh, Religion came along into Christianity through Roman Catholic theology. Religion emphasizes works and not grace. And in that emphasis on works, it was a way of maintaining control on people to to force them into a moral pattern so the church could control them. Uh, Roman Catholic church theology is probably one of the original uh, control points in all of history. We want to control and dominate everybody. (coughs) Well, you have a lot of Protestants who got that way too because after the Protestant Reformation began, both Luther and Calvin originally understood free grace. They originally understood that salvation was by, uh, by, by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ and that once you were saved, it was eternal, it was secure. But they started getting attacked by the Catholics and and the Catholics get saying, you're just a bunch of antinomians and, and how do you keep people in church and how do you keep a moral if they're saved and, and it doesn't really matter after that in terms of their eternal salvation. And so they began to mess with the gospel and they said, well, once again, you don't really know if you had the right kind of faith unless you were obedient. And they missed the whole point and they sort of brought works in through the back door. term for that today is Lordship Salvation. The idea that I can't, again, I can't know that I'm truly saved unless I have the right kind of works consequent to salvation. And that's a, another work salvation that's prevalent in numerous denominations and numerous pulpits today. It's just another form of religion, a subtle form of works, a subtle way of controlling people again. But, but see, what we have in the Scripture is grace. And grace says that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for all your sins. And if you trust in him at that instant, you have salvation. You can't do anything to lose it because you didn't do anything to get it. You can't do anything to earn it at all. And so as a result of that, it is yours forever and ever. But, you know, you can really mess up your new spiritual life if you want to. And you'll lose some things. You will lose opportunities to serve God. You'll lose some rewards and you will lose privileges and position in the future. You'll still be in heaven, but you'll miss out on certain things. And so these incentive clauses, as it were, are put into the contract. You're saved by grace through faith, but if you really want to to serve the Lord and honor Him in your life, if you press on in spiritual growth towards spiritual maturity, if you learn the Word and you study the Word and you live for God on earth today and you grow to spiritual maturity, you'll develop the capacity for righteousness and the capacity for wisdom and the capacity for leadership that will enable you to take a place and be a co-ruler with the Lord Jesus Christ in the future kingdom. So these incentives are set forth to people who are identified in these passages as overcomers. So before we get into an understanding of that inheritance, let me give you a brief summary of what the Bible teaches about rewards and inheritance. All believers have the potential of rewards and inheritance. God set these up in eternity past. So that there is a package deal of assets, blessings, rewards, privileges set up in heaven that's got your name on it. It was set aside by God in eternity past. And if you would grow to maturity, then as a result of your growth and your capacity, God would begin to distribute blessings in time. And then as a result of what you did in time, there would be a distribution of other blessings or rewards in the future. See, they're already yours. They already have your name on it. You don't do anything to earn or deserve them. It's grace. But you have to grow to maturity or you won't get to enjoy them. It's sort of like a, a, a father who's proud of his newborn son and he goes out and buys him a classic automobile, a Ferrari or a Lamborghini and sets it in the garage and it's going to be his when he's old enough to appreciate it. It's his. His name's on the title deed. He's only one month old. He's got a... car sitting in the garage. Now, are you going to give him the keys when he's a year old? No. When he's five years old? No. He's got to get maybe thirty before you're going to give him those keys, and he demonstrates, you know, responsibility and the capacity to handle it and take care of it correctly. But it's his. It's got his name on it. But if he never reaches that level of maturity to properly handle it, he may never receive it. He may never enjoy it. It may never truly be His and be distributed to Him. And that's the same thing with our rewards and with many blessings is they're ours by grace. But if we don't grow... See, it's not works. God's not rewarding us for works in that sense. It is a growth of capacity. And God is not going to bless us beyond our capacity to handle it. Otherwise, the distribution of these blessings would just be abused and it would ruin us. So all believers have the potential of rewards and inheritance, and that distribution of those eternal rewards and inheritance occurs at what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ, sometimes referred to as the the bema seat from the Greek word that's used there, because that was the place in the athletic contests where the the judges would sit and evaluate the races and then hand out the wreaths at the end of the contest. The bema seat was the raised platform on which the judge would sit to adjudicate. Uh, civil issues and criminal trials. So it's a judgment seat, it's a place of evaluation. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, describes this that all of our works, all of our production in life are stacked up, and, and as it were, a, a, a torch is brought in and it's set afire. And only that which has eternal value, that which is produced by God the Holy Spirit in our life, survives. It's described as gold, silver, and precious stones. And on the basis of that, uh, that divine good, that which is produced by the Holy Spirit, we are rewarded. There are crowns. Some rewards are described as crowns. Revelation 2.10 talks about the crown of life. Second Timothy 4.8 talks about the crown of righteousness. There are other crowns mentioned in the New Testament. So you have some rewards that are designated as crowns other rewards such as those listed in these seven evaluation reports have to do with privileges, responsibilities and different things that will be provided for us in the eternal in the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. But all of these come under the category of what is referred to as an inheritance. As an inheritance that which is a possession of ours for eternity. Now, when we get into the Scriptures, we realize there's two categories of inheritance. Two categories of inheritance. And we see this in Romans 8:16 and 17. Now, you might have missed this if you didn't look at this carefully because of the way the English Bible punctuates the sentence. Now, you have to remember something. In the original Greek, there's no punctuation. In fact, there aren't even spaces between words in the uncials they're just they just all run together and it is the grammar itself that indicates where the breaks and pauses are and so you have a phrase uh, you have the the verse re- I'll, I'll read the verse here the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god and if children that is that is we're in the royal family of god then heirs then we have our critical phrase heirs of god and joint heirs with christ if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. Now, I've highlighted this phrase in yellow because that's, that's our focal point. The way this is punctuated, it reads as if the, that being an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ are synonymous. They both belong to every believer. The comma, if you notice, comes after Christ. But it's based on a condition. If we suffer with Him, now, is your salvation based on a condition? So you say, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and suffer with Him. No, it doesn't say that. It just says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Suffering isn't a condition for having eternal life. So we have to take a look at this. And remember, the commas, the punctuation in the in the Greek text was inserted by a man named uh, Robert Stevens as he was riding horseback from Lyon, France to Paris in about... 1546, I think that horse stepped in a few holes in the road and we got a few periods and commas in the wrong spot let me illustrate what, how important punctuation is take a look at this phrase I have up on the board uh, we have six words with no punctuation how would you punctuate those words woman without her man is nothing Where are you going to place the commas? Now, if I were to to take the time to pass this out, I would bet that most women (laughs) would punctuate it like this. They put that comma after woman, woman comma, without her comma, man is nothing. See, what that phrase is now saying is man is nothing without a woman. All because of the punctuation. Now, most of you guys will probably punctuate it this way. Woman <laughs> without her man is nothing. Main point being, woman is nothing without that man. Now, you get two completely opposite meanings of this phrase just based on where you put those commas. And notice I said that probably most women would punctuate it one way and most men would punctuate it another way. See, you come to this with with what uh, lawyers refer to as a, a uh, sort of a predetermined bias. And that's what happens here is that uh, so often people look at a verse in Scripture and they have a theological bias and that affects the way they uh, punctuate the sentence. Now, on this slide, the top line is how it's punctuated in most Bibles. Heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ... These are viewed as one type of inheritance. Being an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ is viewed as synonymous, but they're both conditioned upon suffering with him. And so usually this is taught in the sense that, well, every Christian will suffer at some point or another. Well, just exactly what do you mean? And it doesn't really fit. The better solution is to recognize that you have two categories of inheritance here, that all believers are heirs of God based on their Trust in Christ for salvation, but there's another category of inheritance, being a joint heir of Christ that is conditioned upon suffering with Him. Not going out and and self-flagellating, not going out in the desert like a, a fourth-century desert monastic sitting on a pillar or something like that. Not going into a monastery, but because as you go forward in the Christian life, as you have a hunger and thirst. To grow and mature as a believer, uh, the spiritual life is described in, in the New Testament with one word called godliness. To be like God in terms of your character, to grow and mature. And in First Timothy chapter four, Paul tells Timothy that everyone who desires to be godly will suffer persecution. That doesn't leave anybody out. That if you really want to grow towards spiritual maturity, then you're going to get a bullseye painted on your hindquarters, and Satan is going to go after you. And so that is part of the process of spiritual growth. It will go through suffering, will go through adversity. And so inheritance rewards are conditioned upon the believer who is willing to go through that additional adversity that comes along with spiritual growth. We see this exemplified in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want you to turn now in your Bibles to 2 Timothy 2. This is one of those passages that a lot of people have trouble with. We'll take a few moments just to examine the verse and its context. 2 Timothy chapter chapter 2 and we'll start at verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we'll start at verse 10. Paul has already been talking about the suffering that he has gone through. He says in verse 8, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David... Hmm, what do you think that refers to? Back to the Davidic covenant again. Of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. See, at the point, at this time, Paul was in his last imprisonment where he was was chained, and he's recognizing the fact that as a sinner living in a sinful world, we all go through adversity simply because we're in a fallen world. And then in verse 10 he says, Therefore I endure all things... For the sake of the elect. I endure all things for the sake of the elect. I think that if we translate elect as Bauer Arnton Gingrich suggests here as choice ones, that's a good translation here because he's not talking necessarily here about all believers. He says, I endure all things. And the word for endurance there comes to play in a minute in terms of perseverance, Ho, endurance under adversity. I endure all things for the choice for the sake of the choice ones, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The point I want to make here is to focus on this word salvation. So often in modern evangelicalism, we want to make salvation equal justification. Justification is that point where we enter into salvation. Let me put it on a chart here. There are three phases in the Christian life. Phase one is when we enter into union with Christ, when we receive eternal life, when you move from being a non-Christian to a Christian, when you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. At that point, we are justified because we receive the imputation of the perfect righteousness of Christ, and when God the Father looks at that perfect righteousness, He declares us vindicated just before Him. We are justified. We have a new life in Christ. We have a new position before God. And now there's the spiritual life, the spiritual growth. And all of this culminates in phase three, which is our glorification. And frequently the, Paul writes and uses that word saved to refer to the culmination of the process that future salvation. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, he says that we have all past tense been justified so that we may be saved, future tense. So, salvation has a... The term salvation frequently in the Bible has that future orientation based on a past act of justification. So, when we read Paul talking about here that we may obtain salvation... He's focusing on that future realization of everything in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ, the full benefit of what began at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. So he's focusing on that future destiny with the use of his word soteria there for salvation. And he says that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is focusing on that future destiny. So we use the word saved three ways. Saved from the penalty of sin. That's how most Americans use the word, brother, are you saved? What we mean is, are you going to heaven? But Paul, especially in Romans, probably never uses the word saved in that sense in relation to justification. So you have to watch it. You have to be careful not to read modern evangelical usage into biblical usage. Then we have another usage in Scripture where it's talking about being saved from the power of sin. We're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2. And then ultimate, final, glorification, salvation, where we're saved from the presence of sin, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, and our resurrection body. So that's the focus here, is the future rewards and inheritance, that full possession of that salvation, which is ours as a result of justification. Now, Paul went through a lot when he mentions this. He just talks about the fact that I endure all things. Well, what are the all things that Paul endures? Well, let me just remind you of a key passage in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul says there, gives a grocery list of his suffering there. He says, are they ministers of Christ? That is referring to these false teachers. I speak as a fool because he's saying they're not. He says, I am more in labors more abundant in stripes that's being whipped. In stripes above measure. He can't count how many times he's been whipped, flagellated with a Roman flagellum. We'll see a picture of it in just a minute. He can't count how many times he's been whipped and beaten for the gospel. In prisons more frequently, uh, Clement of Rome later on says that Paul was in prison seven times. We know of four. We don't know of the other three. We know of... Philippi, We know of when he's imprisoned in Jerusalem and Caesarea. We know of his first imprisonment in Rome and second imprisonment. But we don't know about the other three. In deaths often, that is, he was on the verge of losing his life frequently. He says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. You see, according to the law, you could not give more than 40 lashes. And according to the rabbis, just in case you didn't count right, you could never give more than 39. So they had a little... Um, fudge factor there. 2 Corinthians 11.25 Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep in journeys often in perils of waters in perils of robbers in perils of my own countrymen in perils of the Gentiles in perils in the city in perils in the wilderness in perils in the sea in perils among false brethren in weariness and toil in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, not because it was spiritual, you didn't have anything to eat, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily. In other words, besides just the normal everyday things that come on you, living in a fallen world, dealing with the angelic conflict, all this other he went through on a daily basis in order to Proclaim the gospel throughout that first century world. It was beaten with a flagellum. A flagellum was a uh, Roman whip that was used to uh, scourge and whip the criminals. It was a short whip made of two or three leather uh, thongs or ropes that was connected to the handle as we see in the image on the screen. The leather thongs were knotted with with many small pieces of metal, usually iron or stones or pieces of bone, and scourging would quickly remove the skin. According to history, the punishment of a slave was particularly dreadful. Now, sometimes the Romans would also put hooks in there in order to uh, more quickly remove the skin off of the back. Now, while... Paul was in Rome this last time. He was treated as a criminal, as he says uh, in verse nine. He was not treated well as he was on his the first time. He was imprisoned, and from the records that we have on Roman imprisonment, often they were beaten quite frequently and whipped and flagellated. They were just left to uh, heal on their own. They would often become mutilated. Their uh, blood-stained clothing would not be replaced. They were in uh, cells that were dark, that were damp, that were cold. Uh, And at the end of this letter, he asked for them to bring his cloak to him before winter, otherwise he would be cold. Uh, Often male and female prisoners were housed together, which led to a lot of abuse and sexual immorality. Uh, Prison feud was poor, so the prisoners would be fed by friends and relatives who would Bring uh, food to them, and that's what Paul has endured. And so he then quotes, talking about the importance of this endurance. He says, "This is a faithful saying: For if we died with him, we shall also live with him." Now, this is a reference back to Romans chapter six, verse eight, that at the point of faith alone in Christ alone, you're identified with Christ and the justice of God in such a way that you, his death, becomes your death, and his payment for sins is your payment for sins. Romans six eight says, Now if we died with Christ, and we did, we believe that we also live together with Him. 1 Thessalonians 5.10 emphasizes the same thing, that Christ died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. So in 2 Timothy 2.11, we have a faithful saying, If we died with Him, and in the Greek, there are several ways to express that conditional clause, if something, the hypothesis there. If we died with Him, we shall live with Him. And if we died with Him means if you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, then you died with Him. And the promise is that we shall live with Him. It's eternal security. If you died with Him, if you trust Christ as your Savior, you have eternal life, it can never be lost, you will live with Him eternally. That is your Uh, eternal possession that will never be taken from you. Then the next verse talks about what happens after salvation. If we endure. See, endurance isn't a condition for salvation. It's related to spiritual growth. If we endure, Paul says, we shall reign with Him. That's what we're talking about. If we endure, we shall reign with Him. This is the Greek word, Hupamenno, the verb meaning to remain under, to persevere, to sustain, to bear up under adversities. It's the idea of remaining in the adversity by means of the application of doctrine with the result that you have joy, stability, peace, and tranquility. James 1, 2 through 4, and Romans 5, 3 through 5, uh, emphasizes this a connection between perseverance, endurance, and spiritual growth Romans 5:3 we read and not only that but we also glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces endurance and endurance character and character hope so it leads to that future destiny if we endure then we will reign with him that's what revelation 3:21 is talking about is sitting on his throne with him but then we have a warning at the end of that verse If we deny Him, He will also deny us. Does that mean He denies us salvation? Well, if it meant that, then Paul's contradicted himself right in between two verses that affirm eternal security. So it can't be that if we deny Him, He denies us salvation. But if we deny Him, He denies us rewards. He denies us place of responsibility and reigning in the kingdom. And that makes sense because the the parallelism between the first stanza and the second is dealing with this issue of rewards and future uh, renal responsibilities with Him. If we endure, we'll reign with Him. If we don't endure, we cave in, we deny Him, then we won't reign with Him. And then he concludes in verse 13, if we are faithless, it's not talking about faith it's salvation. It's talking about Faith in the spiritual growth. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. See, that's our promise of eternal security. Even if you fail, He is faithful and He can't deny Himself. You will still be saved. That's the emphasis in the picture of the judgment seat of Christ being saved, yet as through fire you can lose rewards. So there's this emphasis on the fact that we will reign in the future. 1 Corinthians 6, two says this says that we will judge the world. The saints will judge the world and we will judge the angels. Matthew 19, 20, uh, 28. I'll come back to that in a minute. Revelation 5, 10 says that He has made us kings and priests to our God. Actually, there's a debate over that. Some of your versions say He has made us a kingdom and priests to our God. The Greek word basileia there can refer to either the geographical extent of the, of the dominion, which would be kingdom, or it can refer to the function within the kingdom. I prefer to think the context indicates function here. He made us kings. He made us rulers and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. This begins to take place after the second coming. Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the Word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image. And it goes on, but the main point is these thrones in Revelation 24 are the thrones that we will sit on as believers in the church age and our resurrection body returning with the Lord and ruling in the kingdom. This takes place when he returns. Matthew 25:31 to 32 says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit. On his glorious throne. Not now, but then when he comes back, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. The Lord Jesus Christ at that point, having crushed all of his enemies, according to Psalm 110, 1 and 2, Hebrews 10 13, will then occupy the throne of his father David. The issue for us is are you an overcomer? Are you someone who wants to take up that incentive challenge to be an overcomer, to be prepared to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for your word that it not only reveals to us the nature of who we are and our failures, but your perfect solution of salvation. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for our salvation, and that is a free gift It is neither earned nor deserved. We can't uh, be good enough. We can't uh, get it by church attendance or participation in ritual or any other human factor. It is a free gift. Jesus paid it all. But, Father, there's also an incentive for us as believers to press on to maturity because there's a future destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would take up this challenge. That we would not live today in light of tomorrow, but we would live today in light of eternity. And that the decisions that we make today, our priorities, our values, would be shaped by where you're taking us and not by the needs of the moment. We pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.